The following audio is from Fellowship Baptist Church in Nederland, Texas. Our mission, to make and mature disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Fellowship, visit fellowshiptx.org. Good morning. So, uh, I've been in a lot of churches before where the music is just not that good. Anybody can experience that? But here, man, the, the band and the worship team, man, they do a phenomenal job in leading us in worship each morning, and so I just want them to know we really appreciate that. Yeah, thank you guys so much. They work really hard. Uh, I'm really... A little bit frustrated. I don't know if you guys saw Stephen playing keys over here. That was the one instrument that I could play that he couldn't play yet, and now he's figured out how to play it. And he'll probably get better at it like the rest of them. I want to talk to you about this morning about something that I feel like we can all relate to, right? Uh, so there's, there's this idea that when someone comes to your house, if you know them but you don't really know them, you probably like rush to clean your house, right? Like you don't really know them that great, you find out they're coming. Uh, and you rush to get the house really clean, and, and, and the level of cleanliness is, is based on how well you really know them, right? So, so if you don't know them at all, like a, a guest that you haven't really hung out with much comes over, you like really deep clean, right? You clean all the baseboards, and you, and you scrub everything really good, and, you, and you're anxious the whole time that they're going to think that you're a slob. And then uh, if, if it's someone that you kind of know, you may just like pick up a little bit, uh, like the other day. Uh, uh, some people came over and so we just kind of picked up a little bit. But then you have people that come over that you like really know. You're like, man, just forget. I don't even care, right? You, see, you, got, you got clothes laid out all over the, 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 the ground, right? Uh, Julie and Melissa came over to the house the other day. That it's like one of the few people that could text me unknown and just be like, hey, you, you cool if we just show up? And we're like, okay, that's fine. But there's very few people in my life that I would be like, okay, that's okay. Because there's, you know, the house is constantly, uh, we, we try to keep it clean, but with four kids, it's just constantly stuff everywhere. And so uh, with them, it's like, well, we really know them. And uh, they, they may be judging us, but they at least love us enough to let it, let it slide, right? <laughs> so the point I'm trying to make this morning is that there's absolutely a difference between knowing about someone intellectually and really knowing them, right? There's, there's a huge difference between knowing someone in your mind, maybe knowing a little bit about them, but no, and versus knowing them intimately. Um, you guys probably have a favorite TV show. Most people do. You have a show that maybe you watch a lot, maybe a sitcom that you follow, and you become really familiar with the characters, right? You become familiar with the characters to a point to where you feel like you may actually know them personally, like you watch them on the show and you fall in love with those characters. And, and then if that person, that actor goes to another movie or another show, you watch them on that show or that movie too, because you fall in love with that, with that, with that actor. And you may even have like, like a, a shirt or like a figurine or a mug or something with their picture on it, which is, let's be honest, a little bit creepy, right? It's, it's, it's kind of weird. I always thought it was weird like when, when moms buy shirts with their kids' baseball player on the front, uh, but that's not nearly as weird as putting a total stranger's face on your shirt, right? And, 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 but but we, we do that, right? Because we've become fans of these people. We don't know them, 
And, and if we showed up their house for dinner one night randomly, you would be escorted off the property and arrested probably. But, but we, we feel like we know them because we see them on TV. We may even know a lot of facts about them. We follow them in all of the magazines and all the things that's going on. We follow their social media pages. And, and, and that is our idea of knowing these people. But we recognize, hopefully, unless we're insane, that we don't really know the people, right? We recognize that we don't have a personal relationship. We don't know these people intimately. Even though we know a lot about them, even though we may have stuff with their faces on them, we don't really know them personally. And that's some people's relationship with God. They're big fans. Big fans of God. They got the t-shirts. They got the mugs. They got the quotes on their social media pages. They're really spiritual and they're really big fans of God but unfortunately, they don't really know God intimately. They're fans, but they're not friends. And listen, this is not the message of the gospel, right? We know that the message of the gospel is that we can know God intimately, that we can have a personal one-on-one relationship with the God that created the universe. Through the reconciliation that Jesus offers, we can be reconciled back to God in a relationship with him. Philippians 3.10, Paul says this, my goal, and I've used the scripture uh, not too long ago, my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Paul's understood that, that, the, that the goal of the believer is to know God, that that's the, that's the thing that we actually get with the gospel. Knowing God is the true treasure of the gospel. Do we recognize that? Because a lot of times our perception of the gospel is that, hey, it just makes it to where I don't have to go to hell one day and I get to spend eternity in heaven. But the true treasure of the gospel is that we get to know and commune with the God that created the universe. That is the benefit of the gospel. And yes, that turns out to be an eternity in heaven and that is a huge reward. But the real reward is that we get to be reconciled back to God in a right relationship with him. And that is the message of the gospel. And so in our text this morning, Paul is incredibly distressed over the reality that most people in Athens at the time were seeking religion and spirituality, yet they didn't know the one true God at all. These people that Paul's about, that we're about to read about, they understood spirituality. They were fans of the idea of God, but they did not know God. They didn't have a relationship with God. And so we're going to start off in Acts chapter 17, verse 16 this morning. And it says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. So Athen, uh, uh, Paul is in Athens, he looks up and he, he comes into the town and he recognizes that there's these statues, statues and there's these temples to all these different idols. And Paul is distressed at the reality of it, not just because you know, God is not being honored in this situation, but because there's all of these people that just don't know God. They don't have the gospel. They don't have a relationship with God. They're seeking spirituality, but they're not knowing the one true God. And this distresses Paul. And, and, and for us today in 2020, when we look out on the, at the culture of the world that we live in, we see a world of people who are worshiping idols. They're worshiping themselves. They're worshiping money. They're worshiping all these different things, but they don't know God. And when we look at that, are we distressed? Do our hearts break for the fact that there are people who are lost? They don't know the Jesus that we worship. 
It says, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshiped God. So that Paul does what he does. He starts off in the synagogue and he starts preaching the gospel to those who will listen. It says, as well in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. So Paul goes into this marketplace and he starts preaching the gospel. And at this point in time, Athens is this hub for like philosophy and, and spiritual ideas. And so he's in there speaking with tons of other people who were sharing ideas and different things. And it says, some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. So Epicureans uh, believe that pleasure and avoidance of pain are the chief end of man, that that is what we're aiming ourselves towards, that, that our focus should be all about pleasure and the avoidance of pain. And it seems like maybe they misspelled American there, but, but that's not the case. It really is Epicurean. And then he talks about the Stoics. And Stoics believe that self-mastery is the greatest virtue, that our focus in life should be uh, self-control and self-mastery. Uh, but both are full of arrogance. They both think that they're enlightened, that they have this knowledge that, that Paul is an idiot, and they're, they're annoyed at Paul's teaching. And so they're debating with him. And it says, some said... What is this ignorant show-off trying to say? They're talking about the Apostle Paul. What is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to uh, Areopagus and said, may we learn about this new teaching you are presenting because what you say sounds strange to us, and we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. And so what these people love to do is just sit around and throw around ideas, listen to philosophy, and, and talk about culture and all the things of the world. And Paul comes and he starts preaching the gospel, and these people are... are, are it's just foreign to them. They don't understand what's going on. And he is incredibly saddened by their lack of understanding. In their own mind, these people are so enlightened, yet they don't know the one true God. And it reminds me of Romans 1, where Paul writes, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. And so this is... And does this not feel like the world we live in today, where everybody feels like they're philosophers in their own mind, that they've got it all figured out? That they've got their ideas of spirituality, and, and, and in their minds, what they've done is they've created gods in their own mind of what God should be. And that's the God that they worship, right? You'll hear people say, my Jesus, blah, 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 right? Or my God, blah, blah, blah. What about the God of the Bible? What about the one true God, right? We've, we've created these images in our mind and the world that we live in worships their own version of Jesus or worships their own version of God, but it's not the one true God and, and they don't know the one true God. And so when we recognize this and we see this, we should mourn this as Paul mourned this and we should speak truth into the culture. And so Paul addresses them with three things that will point them towards intimately knowing God. And so this morning, if you're listening and you realize, I don't know that I really know God. I, I, know, I know about God. I maybe even was raised in church and know all the stories and all of the things that, that, that people have been teaching for time, but I don't really know him intimately. I don't have a relationship with him. Then listen to these points that Paul makes this morning. 
First of all, he talks about knowing who God is. It's hard to know someone intimately if we don't really know the things that make them who they are, right? It's really hard to know someone in a personal relationship if you don't really know much about that person. Um, I always hate, you guys may have heard the game Mafia before. It's, it's a game where you sit down with your friends and you pass out some cards and everybody closes their eyes and you get a card and it assigns you a certain role within the game. And so you may be assigned a mafia, you may be assigned a townsperson, you may be assigned a cop, and the whole point of the game is trying to figure out, everybody talks and tries to figure out who the mafia is before the mafia kills off everybody else. And, and, and so it's, it's a game of secrecy and, and you're trying to figure it out. And uh, I hate playing with Becca. Not because she cheats, but I feel like it is kind of cheating. She can immediately tell if I'm lying. Like immediately, she can look at me in the eyes. I don't even have to say anything. I just look up, you know, you close your eyes and you get your card and you look at it. And I'll look up like this and she'll be like, Daniel's Mafia. <laughs> totally not fair. Totally not fair. And why is it that she can tell? It's because we've been together for a very long time and she knows all of the things that make me me. Right? She can see in my facial expressions immediately that I am am that card or whatever. When we really know someone, we know about them, right? We know what makes them who they are. Um, I talked about this in our growth group this morning, but there is a prominent Christian artist from the 90s. And if I mentioned his name, a lot of people would know, I'm not gonna do it, uh, but but many people would know who he is. Um, He was part of a really big group in the 90s that was a Christian uh, artist. And he posted something on Twitter the other day uh, about his views of who Jesus was. In essence, he doesn't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. He doesn't believe that the Bible is true, and, and all, all of it is true. And so he started saying things about uh, abortion and gay marriage and, 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 and was basically stating that Jesus is for these things. And, uh, and what that tells me is this, the, the guy is very spiritual, If you go to his Twitter page, you can see all these things where he talks about God and all these spiritual things, but he doesn't know God. Because if he knew God, if he knew the God of the Bible, if he had a relationship with God, then he would know that these things go against what God's word is. Paul's audience is spiritual. They believe in spiritual things, but they know nothing about the one true God. They know nothing about the things that make him who he is. And so Paul starts with introducing them to Yahweh, right? He, he goes to this list and it's not exhaustive because we can't know everything, but he gives a pretty good start about who God is. And he starts off in verse 24. He identifies God as the creator of God. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it. So he says, just in case you were wondering, all of this stuff that you look at, This God is the one who created that. This is the God that created the universe that we live in. He is creator. He's the one who formed the universe with his words. Colossians 1, 16 says, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth. The invisible, the visible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And let's be honest, today, this very basic characteristic of God is under attack. This very basic characteristic of God is under attack. For many, believing something came from nothing is an easier pill to swallow than believing in a creator. Why? Because if there's a creator, then we are all subject to that creator. God is 
creator. He is the one who created the universe that we live in. He is the one that formed it with his words. If you've ever been anywhere other than Southeast Texas where there's these beautiful mountains that form and we went to the Grand Canyon a few weeks ago, you see this huge open space in all of the different colors. You can only look at that and come to one conclusion if you are rational and that is that there must must be a creator that formed these things. That there is intelligent design behind everything that we see. Nothing, no other conclusion can be rational. God is creator of all. In the second part of verse 24, he tells us that God is king of all. He says he is Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in shrines made by hands. Yahweh is not only creator, he is king. He is king. He is above all, and he does not live in shrines because he's bigger than that, right? God is bigger than any box that we want to try to fit him in. God is way bigger than what our minds can even conceive. And so these people are building gods with shrines that are made by their hands. What is that? What is the logical conclusion of that is that, that God is something that they can control, If they're building these shrines and these little images that God is supposed to reside in, then they control that. But our God, Yahweh, does not fit in these boxes. He doesn't live in shrines made by hands because he is bigger than all. He is king. Job 36, 26 says, yes, God is exalted beyond our knowledge. The number of his years cannot be counted. There's this temptation to fit God into the box of our understanding, right? We We want God to fit in our box of understanding. So when we have questions, and maybe God doesn't, our view of God doesn't fit within those questions, then we say, well, I don't want that. Listen, God is bigger than your ability to understand him because he is bigger than all things, and he is king. And our responsibility is to submit to him as Lord. So God is creator of all. He is king of all. And he is sustainer of all. Verse 25, Paul goes on. He says, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives everyone life and breath in all things. God is not the one who needs anything. We are the broken ones who need. He is all and has all. God is not served by us. He doesn't need us. It is our privilege to be part of the work that he is doing. He doesn't need us, but yet he gives himself for us. He's not dependent on us. We are dependent on him. We're dependent on him. Jeremiah 17, five through eight says this. This is what the Lord says. Cursed is the person who trusts in mankind. This makes me think of Governor Cuomo in New York saying things like, we don't need God in this. He makes human flesh his strength and his heart turns from the Lord. He will be like a juniper in the Arabah. He cannot see when good comes, but dwells in the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land where no one lives. The person who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence indeed is in the Lord, is blessed. He will be like a tree planted by the water. 
It sends its roots out toward a stream. It doesn't fear when heat comes and its foliage remains green. It will not worry in a year of drought or cease producing fruit. Listen, God is sustainer of all. We should root ourselves in him knowing that he is what gives us life. He is what gives us breath. He is what gives us life. And every morning we wake up and say, thank you, Jesus, for another day. Because we recognize that there is no life apart from him because he is sustainer of all. Next, he's determiner of all. Acts 17, 26. It says, from one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and their boundaries of where they live. So not only does God sustain us, but he determines our world as well. He is the one who is steering all of these things into place. Ephesians 1.11 says this, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, uh, to the, the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. I love how that's written. That he works all things according to the counsel, not of other people, but of his own will. God is at work in this world and he is working everything according to the counsel of no one but his own will. And what does that do for us? That gives us peace. We don't have to worry about tomorrow because God is in control. He's got this. And so with things like coronavirus and economic uncertainty and this presidential election that's coming up, we as believers, we don't worry about it. Why? Because God is in control. He is the one steering all of these things that we see. He is fully in control of this world and he doesn't relinquish control. It's not like, man, my guy didn't win the election so, so God must not be, no, God is always in control regardless of how circumstances work out in life. And we trust that he is the one who is the determiner of all. Other people may think, hey, we have victory, we've won. No, God has won. Regardless of what happened, God has won because God is in control of all things. We may not understand the whys, but who are we to even have a voice in the conversation? We may not understand why God works the way he works, but who are we to even ask? God doesn't need our counsel. He only looks to his own will for his decisions. And that brings peace because, one, we understand we don't have to have control. I don't know about you, but that's freeing. I don't have to have control. I don't have to add things my way. God is in control. But two, we know that God loves us because he's already proven his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We don't have to worry, hey, does God love me? No, God does love you because he's already proven his love for you. And that same God that loves you is the one who has the steering wheel of this world that we live in. Next, he is father of all. Verse 27, he says, he did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him. Though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of you, some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Since then, we are God's offspring. We shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. This God who is creator, 
this God who is sustainer, this God who is determiner, is also Father. And we can come to him in confidence. Hebrews 4, 26 says, therefore let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Listen, this same God who is all of these things stands with his arms wide open saying, come to me. Come to me, those of you who are burdened. Come to me and and I will give you rest. This is the God that we worship. This is the God that we have given our lives to. You guys know the story of the prodigal son. He goes and to his father and says, give me my inheritance. I want nothing to do with you anymore. Give me my inheritance now. I'm going to go live my own life. He leaves his dad, takes his money, and he goes and squanders it and ends up finding himself incredibly impoverished, eating out of a a pig's trough and, and realizes in that moment, hey, I could go be a servant for my dad and at least have a good hot meal. And so he goes back to his dad and formulates this whole speech that he's going to say to his dad in hopes that his dad will show enough mercy to let him sleep in the slave quarters and at least have a hot meal. And as he's walking up the road, he doesn't even get to an opportunity to, to, to give his speech. His dad comes running towards him with arms wide open and welcomes him back into the family. That is the gospel. God is father and he is there to receive us with arms wide open. So it's important to understand who God is. If we're going to know God intimately, we need to know these characteristics about God. And so Paul starts off with this truth of who God is, but then he transitions and he starts talking about knowing what God says. It's one thing to know who God is. It's another thing to know what God says. In verse 30, he says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance. God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. This is not a popular message that you can't just go on living your life living in sin and think that that God's just going to let that slide. No, God says repent because judgment is coming. That is the message of of the prophets. If you look at any of the prophets in the Old Testament, you can go read all of those books and I promise you, here's what the message is going to be. Eventually, you'll see, hey, repent because judgment is coming. That's the message that God has been giving to mankind from the beginning is that, hey, you have sin in your life and that separates you from me and you must repent of that sin. Second Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. Listen, repentance is more than guilt. Do you understand that? You can hear an impassioned sermon and feel guilty for your sin. That's not necessarily repentance. Repentance leads to something. Repentance sees sin for what it is and mourns it and recognizes what, what, what the outcome that sin brings into your life and, and, and says, I want nothing to do with that anymore. 
I hate the sin in my life. I mourn the sin in my life because I recognize what it does in my life. I'm going to run from it. That's repentance. Guilt produces emotion. Repentance produces action. A couple of years ago, it's been a few years back now, I was brushing my teeth and uh, I happened to notice a spot on my tongue right here that was a little black spot. And, uh, and I thought, well, that's weird. I wonder what, that's, what, that, what that is. Maybe it was a pop blood vessel or something. So I ignored it for a little bit and uh, it kind of got darker over the next few days. And I was like, WebMD says I'm done, so I guess this is it, right? You go start Googling what it is, and of course it's cancer and all this bad stuff. And so I see this, I, I realize that, hey, this might be something that's actually kind of serious. So I go to an oral surgeon and have him look at it. And he's like, yeah, that looks pretty rough. We might need to remove that. And, uh, and so in that moment, I wasn't like, you know what? It's really not that big of a deal. I'm just going to ignore it. No, I was actually very concerned. And I was like... I'm going to die. This is how I die, right? And so I schedule an appointment and they remove it, which that is the worst surgery ever that I've ever, ever had. Is they cut your tongue and it was like, like a snake or something, like it was all split. And then they put it back together, had a stitch. It was, all, all, it was gross and it hurt really bad. But I didn't look at that spot. It was non-cancerous, by the way. But I didn't look at that spot and think, it's not a big deal. I'm going to leave it alone. Now, I recognized that it was necessary to get that out of there. It was incredibly painful. And it was a painful process to get it out, but it was necessary because I didn't want it there. Right? I recognized what, it, what, what that could mean. And I wanted nothing to do with it. I, wanted, I was willing to do whatever it took to get rid of it. When we see how God sees sin, we realize that the wages of sin is death. We'll do whatever is necessary to remove it from our life. When we realize just how serious God sees sin, we're not going to play with it. We're not going to minimize it. We're not going to think it's not that big of a deal. What we're going to do is we're going to repent of it. And we're going to remove it from our life. Matthew 5, Jesus is talking in verse 27. He says, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And in verse 29, he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your body parts, uh, one of the parts of your body, than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So again, if we really understand sin, we won't excuse it away with, well, everybody sins. How many times have we said that? And yeah, of course everybody sins. But that doesn't mean we trivialize it. That doesn't mean we excuse it. Repentance doesn't trivialize sin. It doesn't excuse it. It sees sin for what it is. That it brings death and destruction in our life. And repentance says, I want nothing to do with that, and so I'm going to run the opposite direction from that, and we'll deal ruthlessly with sin in our life. 
So if we have a pornography addiction, what do we do? We get rid of the devices. You don't have to have an iPhone. If you struggle with other things, you find accountability in your life, right? You, you recognize that sin is not something to enjoy. It's not something to trivialize. It's not something to mess with. And you run from it as far as you can get from it because you mourn it. You really hate it. I think one of the biggest issues that we have in Christian culture today is that Christians really actually, if they're honest, enjoy sinning. They do. And that's why that we're constantly being overcome with sin and temptation in our life. Listen, if you mourned sin, you would run from it. That's repentance. It means nothing if we come and hear a sermon and we feel guilty and we go home and change nothing. Good for you, you had an emotional experience. That's why Paul's message and God's word is always repent. Because that is what is required for salvation. Salvation from what? From the judgment. Judgment is coming. That's the second part of God's message always. In Revelation 20 verse 11 it says this. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Listen, it doesn't matter what good or bad you've done in your life. Why? Because no one is good. On this day of judgment, when we stand before God, and he starts looking good and bad, good and bad, good and bad, it doesn't matter if your good is way up here and your bad is right here. The punishment is still the same. Romans 3 says this, in verse 10, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one un who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. So listen this morning, I don't care how much good you think that you've done in your life, it pales in comparison to the rejection of God's holiness that you've committed in your life. And that is what separates you from a perfect and holy God. No one is good, and without, righteous, without the righteousness of Christ, we would all stand before God condemned. God's word is clear. If we do not repent of our sins and confess Jesus as Lord, we will face judgment. That is the clear message of the, of the scriptures. That is the clear message of the gospel. Without repentance, there is judgment. Again, guilt does not get you there. It's got to be repentance. Intimately knowing God involves knowing who he is, knowing what he says, 
And then finally this morning, surrendering to what he says. Verse 32 in Acts 17, it says, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him. But others said, we'd like to hear more from you again about this. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed. There's a lot of times as a teenage boy that I knew who my dad was. I knew that he was a disciplinarian. I knew that he loved me. I knew that he had a really good swing in this right arm. Yeah? I knew what he said. Don't do X, Y, Z. But I chose to reject it. And I faced the judgment. You can know who God is. You can know what God says. But until we surrender to what God says, we can't really know him. You can't really know him intimately until you actually give yourself to this message. Some will hear the gospel and surrender to it. And some will hear it and they'll reject it. They'll make excuses. They'll try to trivialize the sin in their life. But without surrender, there is no communion with God. Without surrender to this message, without really believing it and putting your faith in it and giving yourself to it, there is no communion with God. Luke 9, 23 says this. Then he said to them all, talking about Jesus, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will save it. If we try to maintain control We'll never truly know God. If you try to maintain control in your life, you're never truly going to know God. In Matthew 7, 23 will be true of you, where he says, I will announce to them, I never knew you depart from me, you lawbreakers. I don't want that to be your story. Without surrendering your life to Jesus, there is no knowing God intimately. But the gospel is this. Be encouraged this morning because the gospel is this. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the beauty of the gospel. It's that yes, you've sinned. Yes, your sins separate you from a holy and perfect God. But because of God's great love for you, He sent his son to die on a cross for you so that you can be reconciled back to him. And all that we have to do is surrender to this message, surrender our lives to Christ and give him control, repent of our sins and run from them. And then we can know God. You can know God. And I don't mean know about God. I don't mean be a fan of God. I mean, you can know him like you know your best friend. You can know him like you know your spouse. You can have an intimate relationship with the God of the universe. Paul's message to these people is you don't have to pray to an unknown God. 
They had this statue set up to the unknown God. That's not the God we worship. That's not the God that we surrender our lives to. Yahweh is the knowable God. He's the God that you can have a relationship with this morning if you just repent of your sins and surrender to his message of hope. You don't have to pray to an unknown God. He is very noble, he's very personal, and he's very reachable. All we have to do is acknowledge who he is, creator, king, sustainer, determiner, father, understand what he said, and surrender to him. That's it. That is the message of the gospel. That is why we gather every Sunday, Wednesday, is to celebrate that message. That's what we've built our lives on, is that message of hope and love. And so this morning, as we wrap this up, the challenge for you is if you don't know him, if you don't know him, if you haven't surrendered your life to him, the call is simple. Give your life to Jesus this morning. Acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge that your sin separates you from a perfect and a holy God. Don't just feel guilty about it, but repent of it. Run from it. And surrender yourself to this message of hope. Would you please stand with your head bowed and your eyes closed? If you this morning have never repented of your sin, again, not felt guilty, but truly repented, and surrendered to Jesus as King, and I would ask you to simply do this. In a moment, we're going to start singing, and there'll be some people that'll be standing down here in front who would love an opportunity to talk with you about how you can really know this creator God. How you can have an intimate relationship with the king of the universe. The one who controls all things. The one who sustains us and gives us life. If that's you, and here in a moment when this band starts singing, I would invite you to come down, grab one of these people up front's hand and tell them that you want to know Jesus. You want to know God, you want to have a relationship with him and let them talk to you about how you can do that this morning. This morning, if you would say, I, I do have a relationship with God, I know him, I've, I've put my faith and trust in him, I've surrendered to him, but maybe you have some things in your life that you recognize or, or things that, that are separating you from him relationally right now that you need to deal with, some sins in your life that you need to confess this morning. And these altars are going to be open for you, you can come down here get on your knees and, and pray before God and ask him to forgive you and to truly repent because again there's a difference between feeling guilty and repenting when we feel guilty we live with the same sin over and over and over and over again and nothing ever really happens but when we repent of that sin God changes our heart and changes our desires for that so this morning the challenge is simple. If God's leading you, come down. If he's speaking to your heart and leading you towards something, you can come grab one of these people by the hand or you can come pray before these altars. God, we thank you for this time together this morning. We thank you for the, 
beauty of your gospel. The fact that we don't have to earn favor with you. We don't have to work towards this, God, but we can, we can just repent of our sin and recognize and agree with you about our sin in our life. And then we can put our faith and our trust in you and all it requires is faith to give ourselves and surrender to you. And then we can know you. We can have a relationship with you. So God, I pray that we recognize that that is the true value of this gospel, that we can know you. That we can, we can know you like we know our best friend. We can know you like we know our spouse. So God, this morning, I pray that if anyone in this room doesn't have that level of relationship with you, that they would come down this morning and grab one of these people by the hand and speak to them about how they can really know you. Not know about you, not be a fan of yours, but really, genuinely know you. God, be with us in this moment. Thank you so much for listening today. And we always welcome you to join us at Fellowship Baptist Church in Nederland, Texas, where we gather, grow, give, and go.